Thanks, Will, for that introduction, and thanks especially for highlighting again that verse that we were just singing, which couldn't be more appropriate this morning as we think about the call and cost of discipleship to Jesus Christ. And we're going to be reading in Luke chapter 9. If you have a Bible in front of you, if you could open or scroll to Luke 9, and we're going to start and break in at verse 51 in just a minute. I remember a few years ago watching a documentary about new recruits who were joining the Royal Marines. They were going to join the Royal Marines, undertake their basic training, and those who were successful would receive that coveted Green Beret that was the mark of those who were a member of that elite unit. And throughout the course of that training, some of them dropped out because the, the standards for, for being a Royal Marine are, are just so incredibly high. Uh, some of them were put out because they, they didn't make it. But those who persevered to the end were awarded the Green Beret. And the point is that not everyone who fancied themselves as a Royal Marine actually made it to the end. And in fact, the, the one that really stuck with me was right at the very start, because right at the start, they bring them all into a room, and the commanding officer stands up, and he puts up an oath of allegiance on the screen, and he's going to make them all take the oath of allegiance. And he says, once, you've, once you take this oath, you're bonded to the regiment, and you cannot leave for at least 30 or 60 days. It's desertion. You'll go to jail. So it's no shame on you guys, but really think about what you're going to do. And one guy just quietly got up and turned around, and he walked out, because the reality of what he was committing to had really struck him. Up to that point, maybe he liked the idea of it, He'd like the drama of it or the pomp and the ceremony of it, but he'd never really thought about the reality of it. And that's a bit like three characters we're going to meet in our passage this morning. We're coming, as we've said, into the, the next section of our studies in Luke, and we're coming now into the second half of Luke's gospel. And, and pretty much everyone agrees that there's a turning point in chapter 9 and the, the, the layout that we're following would argue very persuasively that that turning point is our first verse this morning's chapter 9 and verse 51. Because this idea of a journey is prominent in Luke. And we're going to see now Jesus is beginning very determinedly the last journey that he's going to go on. And if Jesus is going on a journey, his disciples are going on that journey with him. And so as we, over these next few weeks, journey with them through Luke, we're going to see not just the journey that the Lord was on, but we're also going to get a very clear picture of what it means to journey with Jesus in this life, to be disciples and follow Him. So let's read, uh, starting, as I say, at verse 51 in Luke 9. When the days drew near for Him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. 
To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. May God bless his word to us this morning as we think about it. So the heart of this passage really is these three characters that we see meeting Jesus on the road. Two of them come to Jesus, one of them Jesus calls, and all of them have this idea of becoming his disciples. And all of them, Jesus confronts them with a harsh reality of what that life really entails. And that's what we're going to think about this morning. Let's look at the first man again. As they they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This is the point that the Lord is making to this man. Everyone has somewhere where they belong. Everyone has a home. Everyone has shelter. Everyone has family, but not me. Not the Son of Man. There's no home here for you. And if you're, if you're going to follow me, there's no home here for you either. And so the first thing we're going to learn from the Lord here is that discipleship to Jesus Christ makes us homeless in this world. Homeless in this world that we live in. And we've just seen that actually illustrated, haven't we, in what's happened to the Lord. He's come to this Samaritan village, and he found no home there. He found no welcome there bit of background for, for us. The Samaritans were a mixed group of people. They were mixed Jewish and other nations around them. And there was this really long history of racial hatred between the Samaritans and between Jewish people. The two just could not stand each other. And the Samaritans had their own form of worship of God and their own place for worship. And to the Jewish people, this was absolutely unacceptable. And to the Samaritans, they knew that the Jewish people felt they were, they were wrong and unacceptable. And so this hatred between them had existed. 
And if you remember the Samaritan woman at the well, Jesus meets her and he asks her for a drink of water and she says, how is it that you, a Jew, are asking me, a Samaritan, for something? So this, this hatred between them had existed. And so we see that this village, this Samaritan village, rejects Jesus completely, doesn't find a home there, doesn't find any shelter or welcome there. Why? Well, we're told it's because his face was set to go to Jerusalem. So Jewish people who were going up to Jerusalem for the festivals and the feasts, many of them would actually take a detour round Samaria so that they didn't have to go through it. Those who did go through it, the Samaritans would have hated them because they saw them. There's another Jewish person going up to Jerusalem. And so the Samaritans looked at Jesus and they saw, there he is, face set for Jerusalem, and he's not welcome here. He was just another Jewish man heading up and that old animosity boiled strong. And that's exactly what the Lord warns this wannabe disciple, isn't it? That's exactly what he's saying. Because of where you're going, because of the journey that you're on, people are going to look at you, and you're not going to find any welcome. You won't find any shelter. You won't find any warmth. You will be homeless if you're going to follow the Son of Man. Even the foxes are better off than I am. The foxes have their holes, and I have nowhere to lay my head. So discipleship to Jesus Christ is going to make us homeless in this present world. And that's something that applies to you if you're sitting here this morning and you're not a Christian, but you're here and you're thinking about Jesus and you're seriously considering following Him and giving your life to Him. Soon in Luke, we're going to see in a few pages over, Luke challenges someone else, and he tells them about the idea of counting the cost of discipleship. Someone said, following Jesus is is not a task that gets added to a list of other tasks, a bit like working a second job. It is everything. It is a solemn commitment which forces the disciple to be to reprioritize all the other duties. So that is what you are considering if you're considering following Jesus Christ. And there's a challenge for each of us as Christians as well here, isn't there? There's a bit of a reality check for us. Do we feel more at home in the workplace or in worship? Do we feel more comfortable in a nightclub or in the church? Where do we truly feel like we belong? Which world do we really live in? The Lord says, this world around you, this isn't your home. This isn't where you belong. And I remember years and years ago when we were doing a, an evangelistic training thing in this church, and it was about called Mind the Gap. Um, everyone who did that has smiled at me because we remember it. Um, and it talked about this idea of bridging the gap between us as God's people and those around us in the world. And I remember one person saying with great emotion, I don't understand what this gap is. Where is the gap? I don't see much of a gap between me and my neighbor or my coworker. I don't think there's any young person here at university today or in the workplace or any of the kids upstairs in CK who would ask me that question today. I think those in school college, university, apprenticeships, are all very aware of the gap between us and the culture that we live in. 
you all know exactly what it feels like to feel homeless in a world that considers you to be irrelevant or laughable or increasingly even dangerous and hate-filled. And one thing that it makes it particularly hard for you as a young person is that there is a generational gap because those above you did not experience that. And I include myself in that generational gap now. Now, there should have been a, a gap between us and the world, but it was very easy for Christian ethics, Christian belief, and Christian life to fit side by side with comfortable middle-class aspirations. And so you, young person, going out into the playground, sitting in the lecture hall, there is a gap in your experience in following Jesus Christ between you and those above you. And so there's no experience or there's very little experience of what you're going through that has been shared with those who have gone before. Is there any comfort for you then as you face that challenge, that homelessness in Scripture? Well, the Lord speaks very plainly to you in John's gospel when he speaks to his disciples. He says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Isaiah, looking forward to the Messiah coming, says he would be despised and rejected by men. And there's a real danger for you in that setting as a young person to feel both homeless and leaderless totally lost in this world around you and lonely and alone in it. Well, Hebrews speaks to you in that setting and it says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And so for you in that setting, I would encourage you to read Isaiah 53 or read Hebrews 11 and 12, which are so relevant to you in this moment. Even better, maybe think about memorizing bits of them. And remember when you feel so acutely that homelessness in this world that you are not alone, that the Lord walked this road before you and the Lord is still walking it now with you. There's a great comfort quietly praying to Jesus in the midst of that particular type of suffering saying, Lord, I know you're with me here. I know you have walked this path. Take comfort in the Lord Jesus. So discipleship to Jesus Christ makes us homeless in this world. Let's look at our second character then. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, for those of us from our setting and our culture and our world, this seems like a very reasonable request and a very strange thing that the Lord wouldn't grant it. Let me go and, and bury my father. And the Lord says, no. And now the thing for us to understand is that the father is probably not dead here. In that world, someone who had just had a relative die in the house wouldn't be out and about. So in actual fact, what he's really saying is, give me a little bit more time. 
Give me a wee bit longer just with my family. Let me get these responsibilities tied up. Let me get the old man looked after. And when he's gone, well, then I'll just be coming right back to you, Jesus, and I'll be right with you at that stage. But I've just got a couple of priorities that I've got to get sorted first. Got to get the father buried. So can I go and, and get that sorted? And then I'm going to come along with you, and then I'm going to follow you. Because the, the responsibility to your parents in that society was probably as high as anything else. And so that's, that's like a really decent priority for this guy to have. And Jesus says, I'm more important than your father. I'm more important than that responsibility. To be clear about what it's not, you know, the, the Ten Commandments tell us to honor our father and mother, and in fact, that's the only commandment that comes with a promise of blessing. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land. So the idea of honoring our parents is incredibly important to God. It's incredibly valuable as to what He wants us as His people to do. And Jesus is not throwing that out. But also, let's not weaken the force of what the Lord is saying here. He is saying that the commitment to Him comes above any other commitment in this world, even the deepest bonds of family. And we're going to see him say that again and again, at least two more times in Luke over these next few weeks. That level of commitment to family and that culture, the, the, the only thing really higher than that would be your commitment to God, and that's what Jesus is demanding of them. Following me demands he goes to the very top of the priority list for us. Priorities. I once provoked an argument by saying that every action in life could be simplified as a value statement. So you might say, I want this, but if you do that, ultimately you wanted that more. Doesn't matter what you say. And it's hard to get around that, even if you say, well, no, look, he was duty bound to do that. Well, ultimately he wanted to be dutiful more than he wanted to not be. Maybe you say, well, he'd no choice but to do that, but he did just didn't want the consequence of not doing it that was here. It's not what we say who we are. It's what we do that shows what our priorities in this life are. It's what we do that defines us. And so we might say that we want to follow Jesus, but we want to be rich more. We might say we want to follow Jesus, but we want to get good grades or a good job or a good house or a good wife or whatever it is. We want that more because actually that's what we're putting our effort into. That's what we're putting our life's energy into. So we can say this, but our actions show our priorities are something else. Rigo Tice said, failure is being successful at all the wrong things. A friend pointed out to me recently how, how it's possible for us to spend so much of our lives achieving things that in the end don't really matter, don't really have any significance at all. And so I'd modify Rico's statement a little, but I would say that failure is being successful at all the wrong things and not being successful at the one thing that matters above all else. In our lives, day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month? How much dedication do we show to our sports, to our golf handicap, to our exam revision, to binging our way through the latest streaming product, to our career advancement, to booking those flights and getting out there and traveling the world? Those are not intrinsically 
morally bad things of themselves, but they become bad when they crowd out our primary call to be disciples of Jesus. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're delaying Jesus. You're trying to stall him a little bit. I'll get serious about following you, Lord, once I get these finals sat. Once I get through those, I'll get really serious about it. Once we get this wedding through, we've been planning it for so long. Once we get married and get settled down, then we're going to really serious about following you, putting you at the heart of our home. Once I get the kids away to school, just get, me, get them through these first couple of years. Let me get the kids away to school, and then I'm going to get serious. And I know I've said most of those things to the Lord, and maybe by your actions, you've said them too. Jesus says, get serious now. Let the dead bury their dead. And get serious now. So discipleship to Jesus Christ takes priority over everything else in this world. Let's look at our third character here for a minute. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Plowing in those days, they didn't have tractors, they had teams of oxen, and they had a plow, and one man stood and he held the plow, and he drove the oxen, and he had to keep just straight line the whole time, kept looking ahead, driving the oxen, steering the oxen, going the straight line. Jesus says, anybody who's steering the plow and looking back, doesn't work, doesn't work. Some of you historians maybe know the story of Hernan Cortes, a man who arrived in the New World to conquer bits of the world at that time, bits of what is now Mexico. And he arrived with 600 men, and they landed, and they got off the ships, and he made them destroy the ships, made them sink the ships. And the message to the men was really clear. We're not going back. We're going forwards. That idea of looking back actually has really good biblical history. Think all the way back to Genesis and Lot's wife. God saves Lot and his family out of that evil city of Sodom, and he says, you go, and as you're fleeing, don't look back. And Lot's wife turned around and looked back. She turned into a pillar of salt. The one that always sticks with me is the Israelites. Whenever they're in the desert, and God has just rescued them out of slavery in Egypt, and he has brought them through the Red Sea, and he has destroyed Pharaoh's army. And, and they're going through the desert, and they're traveling through the wilderness, and God is right there with them, right in the midst of them. And God is providing for their every need with the manna. And they look back. Exodus says, the rabble that was among them had a strong craving and the people of Israel also wept, and they said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. Remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing? The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic? But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing but all this manna to look at. And they looked back. You wouldn't look back, would you? You wouldn't find yourself hungering for the leeks and the onions of this world. Discipleship to Jesus Christ demands that we ply a straight furrow in this life. We cannot walk forwards while looking backwards. 
Jesus says, follow me. And to follow him, we need to watch where he is going. And it struck me this morning particularly how the communion service that we have here every Sunday is such a help for us in that. It forces us to take some time out of life and someone gets up and shares a little bit about Jesus, something he's done or some reality from his character, and we take some time to focus on him, to just take that time out of life and really look at the one who we're following. And so there's a discipline for all of us in coming to that service, and there's a discipline actually for all of us as well in engaging in it mentally, in taking that time to meditate on the Lord Jesus, to think about Him, to reflect on Him, and to focus on Him. Because discipleship to Jesus Christ demands our focus be beyond this world. Looking to Jesus, as we're told again in Hebrews, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So, discipleship to Jesus makes us homeless in this world. Discipleship to Jesus Christ takes priority over everything else in this world. Discipleship to Jesus Christ demands that our focus be beyond this world. So, that's the cost of discipleship. Then we see this episode where the Lord sends out the 72, which is the call to discipleship ultimately, isn't it? So he takes these 72 people, he sends them out in pairs, and he sends them to all the villages where he's coming. So they're like heralds coming before the king. So they're going out into all the villages, and they're bringing the good news. The kingdom is coming near. The king is coming near. Jesus is coming to this village. Now, this is not a, a prescription for how all Christian missions should happen. So the, the not taking things, the not taking sandals, the not taking your money bag, some of that actually gets revoked within Luke's gospel. But there's a particular reason that Jesus does it at this moment, and that's because he's forcing those villages to make a choice. These heralds would arrive, and they would proclaim their message, and then it was up to the village, are we going to give them a welcome, or are we going to send them on their way? Because they had no ability to look after themselves, had no way to shelter themselves, no way to provide themselves. Jesus was forcing the villages to make a choice. They had to make a call. And that's what he says to them. When you go into your house, pronounce peace on it. Now, that's not that he's giving them some ability to go into an evil house and pronounce peace and it becomes peaceful. It's a declaration of their message. It's a declaration of their intent. The king is coming and he brings a message of peace. And if they give that a hearing, then the peace will rest on them. But if they reject it, well, then the peace returns, we're told, dramatically to those who are bringing the message. The peace comes back to them. The kingdom of God has come near to you. That's the message. And the Lord is forcing a choice. And Jesus forces that choice on you today as well. Kingdom of God has come near to you today. How will you respond? Come and follow me is what he says to you. Come and follow me. The Lord in the Gospels, we see him cause love and adoration in people he meets, and we see him cause outrage and offense in people he meets. But we don't see people meeting Jesus and saying, maybe. He forces a choice. Come and follow me. 
And that's the same thing he says to you today. Come and follow me. The kingdom has come near to you. How will you respond? So, as we close, we thought about discipleship, the choice that's presented to each of us. Perhaps you're just visiting with us this morning. Perhaps you've been coming for a little while, or you're following us online, or a family member has dragged you here. That's the choice that Jesus presents you with. Come and follow me. But that discipleship will make you homeless in this world. That discipleship to Jesus Christ will have to take priority over everything in this world. And that discipleship will pull your focus beyond this world. So as we close, let's look at that last section of the 72 again. Whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. Their rejection of the king did not stop the kingdom advancing. That nevertheless is our comfort as we walk homeless through this world. The kingdom is advancing. And our king asks us to throw off the cares and the worries of this world and follow him wholeheartedly. And he says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, but follow me. Because that path of discipleship that he calls us on is not one with an uncertain destination. One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the man who walked homeless through this world will sit as king of this world, belonging here, king over a people who love and adore him. The kingdom is advancing. Are you going to follow the king?